This is only a game. I'm Karen Given. We're going to start today's show with the story of an athlete who was always told to tone it down until she found a team that liked her just the way she was. Reporter Adele Jackson Gibson has the story. Basketball fans call it one of the greatest moments in NBA history. It all went down during game one of the 2001 finals, the Los Angeles Lakers versus the Philadelphia 76ers. Most people had placed their bets on the Lakers sweeping the series. But among those who were rooting for the underdog was one girl who never, ever, ever missed a Sixers game. At least, not after she first saw Allen Iverson suit up for Philly. Honestly, Allen Iverson was the one player that I felt like changed my life. Like, he was like my hero. Her name was Sherelle George, a 16-year-old, 5'3", aspiring point guard, who often joked that she had to throw the ball up rather high to make a layup. By high school, she realized that she wasn't going to get much taller, but Iverson, standing at 6 feet even, gave Sherelle hope. He was proof that short people could ball. And if she had any remaining doubts, his performance in game one snuffed them out. 46 for Allen Iverson. Sherelle sat at home, eyes glued to the TV, as she watched him sink basket after basket, just tearing the Lakers apart. By the time the final whistle blew at the end of overtime, he'd have a whopping 48 points and a win. But right before that, he pulled a move that would become a viral internet meme in years to come. Sherelle could never forget it. Iverson, bothered by Lowe's. He jab steps, jab steps him takes a dribble crossover, shoots it like a fadeaway. Tyron Lue contests the shot. Allen Iverson still makes a shot. Tyron Lue tripped and fell to the ground. And then Allen Iverson steps over Tyron Lue and kind of like gives him like a look. And I was like, oh my God, like this is awesome. Like I want to do that. Seven straight points by Iverson. As soon as she got the chance, Sherelle went outside and practiced that crossover fadeaway shot over and over again. But Sherelle didn't want to be Iverson's carbon copy. Every time she hit the court, she was feeling out her style, figuring out how to make it to the top in her own way. Sherelle hails from the projects of Redding, Pennsylvania, where kids in the neighborhood played streetball nearly every day. When she was four, her mother noticed that her daughter loved trying to play basketball with the neighbors, despite her tiny hands. So on Christmas Eve, Santa dropped off the perfect present. I woke up the next morning to a Fisher Price hoop in a basketball. And I just remember just bouncing it all day, like just being so excited. Like I played every day after that. So as I got taller, which I mean, not much taller, uh, I would raise it up and I would dunk on it. Dunking was fun and all, but Sherelle found that dribbling was her real bread and butter. You can often find her watching the men at the local court or in front of the TV, rewinding and rewatching and one mixtapes. I was that kid who would go in my room in the dark and would just dribble in the dark. Just dribble, no lights, just in the dark in my room. Blah, 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 blah. Sometimes eyes closed and it would drive my mom crazy. Poor Miss Holly George didn't get much sleep with Sherelle around. On the weekends, we would get up. I would get up super early. Like if I knew we had a game at 10, I'm up at five o'clock in the morning just tugging my mom, like, get up, mommy. She's like, girl, your game ain't till 10. Like, we have time. But I was just like, don't forget, like, set your alarm. Like, don't forget. My mother didn't always have a car, um, so we would walk 
hours to my games. And I know my mom would be like tired, but I knew she knew that it would pay off. During the summer blacktop league, Sherelle was playing on boys teams and dominating, wowing everyone with her skills. And when her family moved to Georgia, she became a star on her middle school team. It was clear to her mom that basketball could be Sherelle's ticket out of the projects. It could give her access to a free college education and, who knew, maybe an opportunity to travel the world. But there was one aspect of Sherelle's game that coaches and even her mom sometimes thought could get in the way. I was in the seventh grade and we were in a championship game and it was 20 seconds left and we were up by two. So the coach was telling me, Sherelle, pass the ball around, move the ball. We got 20 seconds. And I literally dribbled out the ball for 20 seconds. I put on like a dribbling show for 20 seconds, just going between my legs, just razzle-dazzle. Everybody was just going crazy. So anytime I got like that spotlight to display what I had been working on in my room and the courts, I, I took advantage of it. Coaches would call me showboat, but I, 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 was, I was the hardest worker on the court. Like offense, defense, I wanted to guard the best player. It was just a part of my game. This is who I am. During her junior and senior years at Noonan High School, Sherelle scored over 1,000 points and became a McDonald's All-American nominee. That's one of the highest honors you can earn as a high school basketball player. Soon, college recruitment letters were piling into her mailbox. The thing was, Sherelle's ACT scores weren't good enough, so she opted to play at Ira Western, a two-year junior college, where she planned on improving her academics so she could eventually play at a top Division I school. But there, her playing style wasn't quite cutting it. My head coach was old school, very fundamentally sound. So me and him clashed my freshman year. I remember thinking like, for the first time, like, man, maybe I can't be who I am. Maybe I do have to change my game for the team. There were a couple games where, you know, I make a flashy layup or I'll do an extra between the leg or a razzle-dazzle move and he'll just like, you're out, come get her out. Even if I made the basket and I remember being super frustrated and crying a lot and not being happy. Um, even wanted to transfer from Iowa Western because I felt like, you know, I just couldn't be myself. He constantly, like, instilled in me, like, Sherelle, like, I'm telling you, you want to play big-time Division One basketball? Let's flash and just keep it basic and fundamental. Sherelle then began to tone it down, buy into her coach's program, and in many ways it paid off. Her sophomore year, she became captain and dropped 25 points a game. She was breaking records, earning accolades, and getting even more attention from college scouts. Then the day she and her mom dreamed of finally came. In 2005, she signed with Purdue University, one of the top women's basketball programs in the country. I became a Boilermaker. Yes, I was excited. My mother was, oh my God, telling everybody. You know, I remember saying, we made it. You know, like, we made it. Unfortunately, the basketball powerhouse didn't ever become a real home for Sherelle. In 2006, the school self-reported six NCAA violations involving the coaching staff, one of which involved Sherelle, who had asked one of the assistants to help her edit a paper. Purdue suspended the coach and Sherelle indefinitely for academic misconduct, an accusation that Sherelle calls an unfortunate mix-up. 
I remember calling my mother and being like, man, like, I don't even know how to explain this to you. Um, because I knew she would be like so hurt and disappointed, you know, especially knowing that I'm not the type of player that ever has been in trouble at any university, not in high school for anything. What made it worse? Her suspension prevented her from transferring to another team. So Sherelle had to train on her own to make it to the pros. Two years later, she and her sister made a 10-hour road trip down to Texas for a WNBA combine. Scouts from the Indiana Fever liked what they saw and called her into training camp to see if she could make the final cut. She didn't. They say you didn't make the final cut, but don't give up. Like, you did great. You know what I mean? You definitely deserve to be in this league. And I felt like the coach meant it. Sherelle returned to Georgia and kept on training for that next opportunity. She got a job at a recreation center and looked for chances to play professionally overseas. Then on August 21st, 2010, she got a call. It was midnight and I was in my apartment in Carrollton. And my sister was living with me at the time. She was downstairs and I heard her scream. And I was like, Rami, are you okay? And she just gave me the phone. And I hear a gentleman's voice. He said, he's like, I'm from the coroner's office. I have your mother's body, Holly George. Their mother had a heart attack while driving on the freeway, and officials found her dead at the wheel. Sherelle had lost her hero and best friend, and it was all too much for her to bear. The stress of it manifested physically. Sherelle's heart was constantly beating rapidly, but she thought it was just adrenaline. She lost her appetite and was losing weight fast, but she thought it was just grief. Then, before the funeral, her aunt noticed that Sherelle's eyes were bulging out of their sockets and there was swelling around her neck. Her aunt told her to see a doctor ASAP. Blood tests confirmed that Sherelle had Graves' disease, an incurable thyroid disorder that can cause hair loss, bone damage, stroke, and heart failure. Without the proper medication to manage it, Sherelle's life was in danger. And her basketball career? Forget it. It was too risky. For most people with Graves' disease, finding the right medicine can be incredibly tricky. Sherelle's case wasn't any different. Her doctors put her on a drug called propanolol, and while Sherelle's heart rate improved, her hair kept falling out, she felt tired all the time, and she was gaining weight like crazy. I was at 180. Imagine that. I have a picture of myself, which I don't share with anybody. You can't even see my eyes. Like, that's how big my face is. After two months of frequent appointments, after having lost her mom in the game that gave her life, she walked into her doctor's office frustrated and fed up. And I said, I'm done. I'm not taking this anymore. He said, you can't go cold turkey off the propanol. You'll be dead in six months. I remember just looking him in his eyes and saying, I'm already dead. I wanted to get rid of this disease. I wanted my body to stop attacking itself. I wanted to feel like me again. I wanted to live. I remember leaving his office and getting in my car thinking like, you're not going to come in this office anymore. It's up to you now. Sherelle then began a long journey of trial and error, trying to figure out what her body needed. She was taking a risk by ignoring her doctor's advice, but over time, her health started to improve. 
She was doing everything, cutting out processed foods, eating raw, taking this herb and that vitamin. She did acupuncture and cupping, saw a naturopathic doctor. Sherelle also moved to Florida, hoping that a new environment would help her in healing. This was, I had been in Florida for six months and she gave me a call and she's like, you know what? I think it's blood work time. Let's take your blood work. Last time it was amazing. Let's see where it's at now. And so I remember walking in and getting my blood work done to check my thyroid levels and they were normal. She was like, you can get back to playing basketball. You're good, there's nothing. And I remember just bawling my eyes out. After, you know, three years, you know, three years of just like fighting, you know, fighting for my life, fighting for my body back, fighting for me. I just remember feeling overjoyed and just like, I gotta fight a team to play for. Sherelle found a semi-pro team called the Miami Lady Bulls, and she even started a successful youth basketball program. Her life was coming back together better than ever before, and she had everything she needed, basketball and her health, the fundamentals. One day, she was at a tournament coaching one of her travel teams when she had an itch to train. In between games, she grabbed a ball and found an open court to practice her drills. Little did she know, somebody was watching. It was one of the refs. He comes up to me and he's like, hey, my name is Keith Arnett. And I've been watching you, like, on the side. Like, do your thing. Like, you can really handle the ball. Like, you can play. And he's like, I have to mention I'm a former Harlem Globetrotter referee. And I think you could play for the Globetrotters. That's right. The Harlem Globetrotters. You know, that basketball troupe of entertainers famous for their jaw-dropping trick shots, fancy handles, and sideline pranks. I'm like, man, quit playing with me. Like, okay, whatever. He's like, well, I got the contact of the scout. Keith wanted Sherelle to send videos to the scout right away, but Sherelle had just settled into her new life. She didn't want to risk losing everything again for a shot at something that might not work out. But Keith was so persistent that she finally gave in and sent her videos. And about 10 minutes later, I get a call. Not kidding you. And it's the Harlem Globetrotter Scout. I'm gonna fly you out to Atlanta to audition. And I'm like, no way, like, this is really happening. Like, he wasn't lying. Now at the tryout, Sherelle would tell you that she didn't have any tricks. Like if the coaches asked her to spin the ball on her finger or roll the ball off her chest, she'd be in trouble. But while she didn't have those special maneuvers up her sleeve, she had her inner child in her back pocket. That young woman who had some Iverson swag in her step, the little girl who studied and one moves like it was her job. And for the first time in a while, she didn't have to hold back. She pulled out her secret weapon, the between the leg tumble dribble, a move that looks as difficult as it sounds. The coaches were sold. They loved her energy, loved the way she just lit up the court. In 2017, Sherelle signed for her first tour in Kentucky. And as the crowd cheered to welcome her to the court, she was reintroduced to the world by her new name. Today, Torch is a professional showboat with no one to tell her to tone it down, to do things their way, or to stick to the basics. For the record, three, two, one, go. 
In 2018, she completed a record-breaking 32 between-the-leg tumble dribbles in a minute. That feat cemented her as the first female globetrotter to make the Guinness Book of World Records. I'm dizzy, but I'm happy. I'm so happy to be the first. To think I was doing that as a child, just doing it, and now that move that I did in the hood has got me in the history books. So many little girls reached out to me via social media and um, sent me messages like, man, you inspired me and I want my own Guinness World Record now. And you know what I mean? I've been practicing that move. Even boys, boys like, I don't know how you did that move. Like I've been practicing it since I seen you do it. I can't do it. I don't know how you did it. Is that real? I'm like, yeah, it's real. <laughs> I'm just living to inspire these young kids now, these young boys and girls who have dreams just like me, who come from the inner city just like me. Every single day I put on that jersey and um, every city we go to, every game, I feel like, man, I've made it. I'm living like the life that, you know, me and my mother always used to speak about. That story came from reporter Adele Jackson Gibson. How does bodybuilder Jared Wells manage to keep up his exercise routine during the pandemic? An update on one of our favorite stories of 2019, coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. As we were putting together this week's show, we noticed we had a bit of an accidental theme going on. All of our stories included some sort of medical challenge that needed to be overcome. And so we decided that this would be the perfect time to revisit one of our favorite stories of 2019. It came from the WBUR podcast Endless Thread, which is produced by Josh Swartz and co-hosted by Ben Brock Johnson and Amory Sievertson. So my name is Jared Wells. I'm originally from Utica, New York, and uh, right now I'm working over at a plants factory and trying to become a pro bodybuilder. Being a pro bodybuilder, what I think of is like basically you get paid to go to places and put oil on your body and flex (laughs) under bright lights. That's what I think. I used to think the same thing, I'm not going to lie. Jared started his quest to become a bodybuilder pretty recently, actually. He's still bulking up, as they say. Can you describe what you look like now? Um, so I'm about 150 pounds. Uh, my, arm, my arms really aren't that big. Uh, they're getting there. My thighs are still kind of thin. I still, uh, I've got some pretty decent calves. And then uh, ripped, ripped abs. And then I'm building my chest up. Do you have, like, a target weight, target, like, circumference of your bicep or something? Um, no, no target circumference or anything like that, but I do, I would like to be at least, I would, my goal weight is 180. 180? Yeah. That's my goal weight, too. But I'm 30 pounds heavier <laughs> than that. 
Hey man, we're we're both thirty pounds away, so <laughs> hell yeah, I'll meet you in the middle. <laughs> sounds sounds like a deal. <laughs> If you think Jared's size and weight sounds a little small for your average bodybuilder, you're not wrong. This is partly because Jared's new to bodybuilding, but also because it's been a big year of transformation for him. January of last year, I weighed 117 pounds, and I'm six, just about six foot one. So as you can imagine, that's that's not very good. I was kind of I was kind of looking at Destor, my lung function had fallen severely my mom and I kind of been planning for the worst we had talked to the doctors about hospice kind of have been thinking about that but I definitely I looked my mother in the eye and kind of told her that that might be something I want to set up a you know a will hospice the whole nine Jared has cystic fibrosis. And I'll be honest, I didn't know a lot about this disease. But Jared has lived it pretty much for 22 years, since he was born. Um, so cystic fibrosis is a degenerative genetic disease um, that affects the lungs and sometimes the pancreas or digestive system. We have a hard time uh, clearing mucus out of our lungs. So it builds up and can cause infections and make it very hard to breathe, kind of clog it all up. And eventually some people have the digestive issue where the mucus can just kind of cover, you know, the digestive tract and make it really hard to absorb the nutrients that most people would. Despite this, Jared says that thanks to his mom and his older brother, he had a pretty quote-unquote normal childhood. He went to school, hung out with his friends, pretty typical. Not so typical, the medications and time-consuming treatments that he had to keep up with every day. Enzymes to help him absorb the nutrients in his food, nebulizers. Um, I also have a machine called a vest, which is literally a machine that pumps air into a vest, you know, fills it up, and then vibrates it very quickly to help break up that mucus to make me cough it out. As you might imagine, this stuff can get pretty tiring. And last January, Jared was freaking tired. You know, after so many years, I was kind of just sick of it. You know, even if I did everything right, I felt like uh, I was still going to get sick. And I was just prolonging the inevitable. And I kind of just let my let myself go. I kind of just decided to enjoy my life to the fullest instead of, doing what I need to do to prolong it. Translation, instead of doing his treatments, Jared would go hang out with his friends. He started drinking a little bit more. He started sleeping more. Which doesn't seem like a big deal on the surface, but when you have cystic fibrosis, backing off of the fight starts to turn into a death sentence. And Jared knew that. He just thought he was ready for it. One day after a doctor's visit, he had the talk with his mom about setting up his will and preparing for hospice, preparing to die. I think it was maybe the next, the very next day, <clears throat> my lung function had dropped so much that I was practically suffocating myself. I just remember calling my mom, saying that we need to go to the hospital, and then being in a, in a wheelchair, finally getting admitted into the hospital. And I, just, I remember coming out of that 
saying to myself, like, there's got to be more. And something just clicked that said, uh, I'm, not, I'm not ready yet. This is when Jared decided to do something totally out of character for him, and especially out of character for someone with his disease. He had this friend from town. The friend's dad ran a bodybuilding gym in Utica, and that friend invited Jared to come work out sometime, if he wanted. So one morning, pretty soon after he decided he didn't want to die after all, Jared hit the gym. But this was not your so-called sports club with, you know, cucumber water and a sauna. So it's a super old-school bodybuilding gym. Yeah. There is no windows, only a few skylights, and then we have one big garage door to open. Um, Walls are concrete with, like, paint chipping on them. There's a, there's a wall of all the people that have trained there that have gone pro. And then, of course, you got all the old school bodybuilders and wi- women bodybuilders with the, you know, the sign, sign frame photos. So, like, what did you do on your first day? I definitely followed my friend around like a little puppy. <laughs> um, What's your friend's name? Uh, Vinny Donnelly. Vinny Donnelly. Okay, mm-hmm. you and Vinny. So we did a, a decline bench press. I was only doing the bar. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. Was there a moment that, like, clicked for you? Were you like, oh, yeah, this is my, this is it. This is my jam. I'm going to do this now. Not really. Uh, (laughs) To be honest, I was thinking it was going to be a one, you know, couple times and then kind of quit. But Uh I don't know what it was. I I just started going every day. And, you know, after Mr. Donnelly, Vinny's dad, uh, I kind of wanted to take me on as a project. Everybody looked at me and said, well, you're not getting out of this now. All right, wreck it. Come on, Jared, own it. Pull, pull, pull. Hold it. Nice job. Jared says Mr. Donnelly's about six foot three, a pretty massive guy. He is very hard of hearing, so sometimes you got to, like, scream in his ear, but... You know, you ask him any questions about bodybuilding, he's more than happy to help anyone. He's, he, he's just that kind of guy. Mr. Donnelly had actually trained with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno in Venice Beach. So there's some legit bodybuilding pedigree there. And he saw something in Jared. Partly attendance. They'd train at 6 a.m. every day because Jared wasn't really into having an audience. There were fewer people there to stare at Jared, who was frail and pale and honestly didn't look like he could lift much of anything. Uh, I'd have to say it was probably like two or three weeks down the road when I started actually having energy and I put on, you know, five pounds of weight and I was like, this, this is amazing. This is exactly where I wanted to be. In the first three months, Jared put on 35 pounds. And that's not even the best part of it. My lung function, uh, it it jumped up to about what it was three years ago, which was kind of unheard of. Um, Typically with cystic fibrosis, when you lose uh, that substantial amount of lung function, it's very, very hard to get it back. And I kind of done that what seemed impossible. Since then, Jared has had a pretty mind-blowing journey. And all in the last year. 
Eventually, somebody caught wind of his story on Facebook and posted pictures and Jared's story to Reddit. It blew up, just like Jared had. Then came more posts with pictures of Jared at the gym and captions like, Jared didn't take today off, did you? He basically became his own meme. What do you make of that? What do you think of all these strangers just kind of ooing and aahing over your what you've made of your life? I, I never would have expected in a million years for people to, to be so impressed or you know, motivated or inspired by what I've done. Jared says the whole thing, his work at the gym and the results he's had, the training under Mr. Donnelly, and the Reddit reaction, has him thinking about the future in a way he hasn't before. I can kind of take control of my life again. Since he started bodybuilding, Jared has taken big steps. Nine months of heavy training in Utica after years of not training at all. He recently moved away from home to Denver, a drier city where he can breathe better. He also has that new job in an appliance factory. He is even considering becoming a motivational speaker. If I can inspire someone to take control of their life or, you know, do something more with their life, that's, that's everything. And then being able to show my mom that everything she did when I was younger is not going to waste. Was it hard for her when you moved? Not, not really. She kind of... She was really excited to get me out of, out of Utica. <laughs> that is not what I was expecting you to say. Me neither. <laughs> I mean, the don't day, let the door hit your butt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the day of she she got very emotional, and I'm not gonna lie, that was, that was probably the first time I've seen her cry when I left. And recently, Jared competed in his first bodybuilding competition. Number thirteen, Jared. Oh, Jared! You know, you're expecting to go in there, kind of have to look tough, act tough, and then everybody's just everybody's just as friendly as can be, and it's like, oh, well, this is definitely not what I expected. How'd he do? In both classes he competed in, he hit top five. Not bad. Not bad at all. Anne-Marie Sievertson and Ben Brock-Johnson are the co-hosts of the WBUR podcast Endless Thread. We'll have photos of Jared Wells before and after his transformation at onlyagame.org. That story first aired in February of last year. And as you might have noticed, quite a lot has happened in the world since then. So we asked Anne-Marie Sievertson to give Jared a call and see how he's been doing. I want to know everything, but I guess I'll just start with, are you still bodybuilding? Um, so I did kind of have to, have to take a step away from that, just with everything that's going on in the world right now. You know, gyms are still open, but I, you know, with me being at such a high risk, I don't want to take that chance. Yeah, of course. I'm still exercising as much as I can to retain any weight and muscle that I do have. But, you know, until... Everything starts to clear up and things get better. I think uh, it's best for me to to stay away. Sure. And when we last talked to you, that was what early twenty nineteen, and yeah. you had said, I know you had gone from like a hundred and seventeen pounds at your lowest to one fifty in January of twenty nineteen, and you said you had a goal of a hundred and eighty pounds. Mm-hmm. Is that still your goal? Are you, are you there? What's the status? 
I, I wish I was there. Uh, that is still the goal. Had a few brief moments where I was hitting 160 and I was doing really well, but it can be really tough to retain that weight. I think I'm at 152 right now. Okay. So this is such a weird time for everyone and, and a really difficult time for a lot of people out there. And I feel like staying motivated is hard enough under normal circumstances. And, and here we are in the furthest thing from normal circumstances. I guess I'm just wondering, do you feel, have you felt derailed at all during the pandemic? Like, is anything setting you back? I wouldn't. Yes and no. Uh, you know, with everything going on and a lot of places being closed for quite some time, you know, that was really tough just on, you know, the mental aspect of it, not being able to go to the gym or work on myself. Um, but at the same time, no, because just because things are closed down or, you know, life isn't necessarily going the way I want it to go, it, it's nothing's really changed. It's continue to work on myself to be better, to get better and do it at whatever cost there is. What keeps you going? I mean, my family and friends are a huge, huge help in that. Uh, a lot of the times it's the people that follow me and look to me for inspiration. I know, you know, if I were to just give up or, or slack off, it's not, not the greatest thing for them to see. You know, I know we're all human, but I want to be that source of inspiration and that, that light. It's also a matter of survival for me. You know, if I don't, if I don't do these things and I don't take care of myself, then I'm just going to go back to where I was before. And I definitely don't want to do that. A lot of people have wanted to know how you're doing. So um, I feel like we have good news for those people. <laughs> you're on track. You're still Jared. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be anyone else. <laughs> That's Amory Sievertson speaking with Jared Wells. And if your podcast feed starts to feel a bit empty after the end of September, consider subscribing to Endless Thread. You will not be disappointed. Last year, audio producer Nick Anderson set out on a 200-mile relay race with a team featuring other type 1 diabetics. There was a real risk of unexpected medical peril on the remote roads of rural New Hampshire. This would be exhausting for any team, but for us, this was dangerous. That's coming up, and remember you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at OnlyAGameNPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. Next week on Only a Game, Bill Littlefield returns. But now it's time for Charlie Pierce and the week's news. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Karen. The Washington football team has hired Jason Wright as their new president. Wright is the first black team president in the NFL, which led Fox Sports to ask him, what would you say to those who say you got this job because you're black? You know, if there's a white brother out there who played seven years in the NFL, got a top five NBA, came a partner at a consulting firm and led businesses through transformations for the last eight years, 
and I beat him out because I'm black, I'm, I apologize. Does he have anything to apologize for? No, no. I mean, Washington continues to have apologies to make for still being owned by Dan Snyder. But other than that, I've got no problem with Jason Wright. He doesn't owe me an apology. Absolutely. Well, Wright says his hire signals a shift in direction for the Washington football team. You are on the record as saying that there is no fix for a bad owner. How much can Wright accomplish with Dan Snyder still in the picture? Well, we're going to see, aren't we? I mean, you know, as long as Dan Snyder is still the owner, the possibility for disaster is always imminent. At least once per season, MLB dissolves into an unwritten rule debate. This year's drama came thanks to Padres' Fernando Tatis Jr., who swung on a 3-0 pitch in the eighth inning. A grand slam! And the Padres go on top 14-3! It was the first grand slam of the 21-year-old's career, but instead of congratulating him, his manager called it a learning opportunity. Wait, I thought the whole point was to score runs, but I guess not when you're already up by seven? Let's get one thing out of the way first. Uh, Apparently, Tatis either missed or ignored a take sign, which is not a good thing to do. That's the issue between him and his manager, and it's a legitimate one. That having been said, the unwritten rules should all be written down and then burned in a fireplace somewhere. Okay, this idea that because Tatis did this, you get to throw at the next batter. That's just moronic. Tatis said that he's been playing the game since he was a kid and has never heard of this particular unwritten rule. (laughs) Am I the only one who wonders if baseball manufactures these dramas once a season just to try to prove that the sport is still relevant? Well, I don't know about relevant, but they do seem to crop up pretty regularly, don't they? Uh, And, you know, maybe it's part of the game's charm. I have no idea. But it seems like we all ought to get over them by now. I mean, it's always couched in, you know, kids today, basically. And this is now the ninth generation of kids today. So maybe the unwritten rules should just go away. Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren has said that the decision to cancel the 2020 football season will not be revisited, despite some pretty intense pressure. I'm not surprised that players want to play, but I am a little surprised that parents of players at Michigan, Iowa, Ohio State, Penn State, and Nebraska have signed letters asking that the season be allowed to go on. You? Sports parents. No different from kindergarten soccer all the way up to Big Ten football. (laughs) We've shined up all our lawn chairs. What will we do now? We'll have to talk to each other on Saturday afternoons. This is a terrible thing. NCAA President Mark Emmert said this week that next spring's championship tournaments, including March Madness, could be played in bubbles. And I find this really perplexing because nobody's talking about playing regular season college games in bubbles. So how would the NCAA figure out who to invite? I guess they're hoping that they get enough games in so that they can, like, put together a field. I have no idea. I don't have an answer to this question. As long as you, you know, you're going to have a sport which requires transcontinental travel, there's no way to keep the disease out. I don't care how many tests and how many epidemiologists your university hires. An 11-year-old named Charlie won a U.S. kids golf event in Florida last weekend by five strokes, shooting a three under 33 on the nine-hole course. But despite his dominant performance, everyone was talking about Charlie's caddy. Why so? Because it's Charlie Woods, the son of Tiger Woods, and Tiger was caddying for him. (laughs) I hope Charlie enjoys this, and I hope that, you know, someday he learns to play the saxophone or something. 
because <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, the pressure of being Tiger Woods was enough. Imagine the pressure of being Tiger Woods' kid. Wow. And finally, Charlie, the Heat will pay Jimmy Butler $34 million this year, but that's not stopping Butler from earning a little extra cash inside the NBA bubble, 20 bucks at a time. Explain, please. Yeah, he's selling coffee, and I must compliment him <laughs> for maximizing the benefits of his Marquette University education. <laughs> we turn him out smart, let me tell you. <laughs> Butler says he's offering small, medium, and large coffees all for the same price, which makes me wonder why anyone would ever order a small, but clearly I'm thinking like someone who doesn't make $34 million a year. Well, or someone who doesn't drink a lot of coffee. Clearly. <laughs> Charlie Pierce is the guest editor of The Best American Sports Writing 2019, and he joins us each week at this time on Only a Game. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Karen. You know, with only a couple of episodes left, I think it's about time we finally come clean. For 27 years, we've been lying to you. It's not only a game. Here's audio producer Nick Anderson with a story about what running has meant to him. There are many things you learn as a newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic, cloistered in the bright antiseptic safety of a pediatric intensive care unit. You learn about how to delay the inevitable, how to balance consumed carbohydrates and the injected insulin that your body no longer produces. You learn about all the things that might go wrong if you sneak in a can of soda when the nutritionist isn't looking. You learn how to explain your incurable condition to friends and teachers and classmates so everybody can understand why you might need to tap into your special supply of orange juice after gym class. And you learn how important it is for blood sugar control that you have a regular kind of physical activity that you enjoy so you can have a check on high and low blood sugars and keep your body in a regular and healthy routine. For me, at age 11, this unwelcome diagnosis was well-timed on the physical activity front, as I had just started middle school and was about to begin running cross-country. Running was new and easy, and surprisingly, I showed real promise. But something I didn't learn at age 11 in the pediatric intensive care unit was how to balance my blood sugar after running 15 miles at 4 in the morning. That I had to learn on the road. So it's about 5.30 in the morning. I have no idea where I am in New Hampshire. This is me in September 2019. I just ran another 15 miles, bringing my 24-hour total to 30, which is definitely a, a record for me in my life. For whatever reason, I had made a series of choices that led me into a van with five other runners, taking on a combined 200 miles in a dizzying ultra-road relay. There was a real risk of unexpected medical peril on the remote roads of rural New Hampshire. This would be exhausting for any team, but for us, this was dangerous. But let me back up. Because I started running just as I found out I would be living with type 1 diabetes for the rest of my life, these two things fused together in a kind of cause and effect, leaving me forever guilted into assuming that the moment I stopped running, my well-controlled diabetes would take a turn for the worse, leaving me blind and without the use of my feet or hands. Four years ago, the friend of a casual running buddy of mine connected me with a group of young Boston-area type 1 diabetics with an interesting proposition. They were running a two-day, 200-mile relay race in order to raise money for the JDRF, a major source of medical research and treatment for diabetes. Team 
This is the starting line at the 2019 Reach the Beach Relay, an annual New England entry in the International Ragnar Relay Series. May I remind you, $600,000 in six years is how much they've collected for diabetes type 1. Well done. Most of these races are the same. 12 people, two smelly, snack-filled vans, and a complicated 200-ish mile course. This one snakes through New Hampshire from the base of a ski hill in Bretton Woods to the ocean in Hampton Beach. The folks in my van were members or friends of the New England JDRF chapter's Young Leadership Committee, which is basically like your childhood church youth group, but focused on blood sugar readings instead of temptations to sin. Our relay team was a part of a larger collective of JDRF-affiliated groups, and together we had raised more than $100,000 every year for almost six years. After my initial race in 2016, I kept coming back to New Hampshire every autumn, and last year, when I couldn't convince 11 other people to climb on board, my team foolishly decided to cut 12 in half and do the same overall distance with a mere six runners. So it's about 3.20, and we're here at the New Hampshire Fish and Game Garage, a place that was not clearly marked on the map, and uh, had some fun and some really quaint uh, rural New, New England roads with some uh, covered bridges. I told myself as I trained for the 2019 Reach the Beach Relay that 37 miles was only slightly longer than my usual 21-ish mile relay effort. And I was feeling good on Friday afternoon as I got ready for my first 15-mile leg. Uh, my blood sugar's in a good place uh, for a run. And uh, yeah, the team's going to stop for me at about halfway. I'll check my blood sugar there and uh, we'll see what's going on. But these optimistic feelings were all lies, I would quickly discover. The first 15 miles were rough. Stupidly, I chose to average a 6.30 mile pace the entire time, which was much faster than I had wanted to hit on the first bit of a 37 mile race. And roughly 12 hours later, I had 15 more miles to run, this time uphill on a dark, chilly New England morning. So it's 12.30 in the morning, everyone is dying, and the reality of the fact that we I have to run all night is hitting me now, and I regret all of my choices. About seven miles later, I tried to shrug off an energy waffle cookie that my diabetic teammate shoved in my face. I got a stern lecture about unexpected low blood sugar, and a quick check of my continuous glucose monitor confirmed my teammate's suspicion. I ate the waffle, which was delicious, because having a fellow diabetic scold me made a difference that a non-diabetic never could. It was a pretty pleasant 15 miles. I had no idea how far I was or where I was or how many miles I had left. And I couldn't really see because it's the middle of the night. And I ran up some steep hills and the only way of knowing it was looking at the little lights of people as they bobbed up. But I felt pretty good and I kept a consistent pace and I just ran. So it's about 2.30 on Saturday afternoon. We're very, very close to the beach in the the titular reaching of the beach. I have eight miles left. I have quite a few blisters. My whole body hurts and uh, I haven't gotten any decent sleep in about 36 hours. And uh, you know what? Screw it. Let's finish this. In keeping with established tradition, our entire team of six exhausted, sweaty do-gooders met on Hampton Beach and ran toward the giant inflated finish line together. Everything hurts! <laughs> it hurts so bad. Oh, God. <laughs> As I staggered across the finish line, slowly, painfully, gratefully, 
I was happy to tack another year of beach reaching onto my running shoes. I was proud that our team made it to the ocean in one piece. With just six runners, we'd covered 200 miles. Shoddy pancreases be damned. That's audio producer and runner Nick Anderson. Only a Game is produced by Jonathan Chang, Martin Kessler, and Gary Wallach. Our technical director is Marquise Neal. Our executive producer is me. I'm Karen Given. Only a Game returns next week. Thanks for listening.